The book of Jude, or Judah, or Judas, begins on page 1027 of your pew Bible. It's the second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Uh, it is incredibly short. Third John that comes right before it is a little shorter, but it's only one chapter long. It could possibly be a copy of Second Peter. That's a fascinating rabbit hole to chase. We won't, though, but there's a lot of similarities between them. We looked at Second Peter a couple of months ago. It is a warning. It is a warning. That's maybe the first thing to drive into your heart. A warning about godless people. You can call them the wicked. I think that's a good way to think about them, the wicked. A warning about the wicked who will come into the church in order to take advantage of the church and in so doing, destroy the church. And so the warning is for you to know that this is written about, that this is prophesied, that this is what we should expect, and that your task as the church is to contend with them, to not let them do that, to not let those who don't believe what the Bible says come into the church and say, let's do a bunch of stuff the Bible does not say. That's the thrust of the entire book, and we're going to try to look at almost all of it today, but uh, in part because I think it's interesting, in part because I hate to preach the same sermon twice, we're going to do everything in this service backwards. We're going to start at the very end of the book. I want you to look at verses 24 and 25. Put your finger there. We're going to glance at verse 3 for just a second, though, so see if you can have both of those in front of you at the same time. Verse 3 says, Beloved Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. I just said that. The book's about contending for the faith. But notice, he wants to write to you about our common salvation. And even though for most of the book, he's going to talk about wicked people, false teachers, hypocrites, and the godless, at the very end, verses 24 and 25, he's absolutely going to write to you about our common salvation. So that's where I want to start, 24 and 25. And here's one more little bit of prelude to this. This sermon, this text, may be more than any other that I've preached at you in this Lenten tide. And they've been kind of rough, Lamentations, Jeremiah. It's been pretty intense repentance kind of stuff. This text, more than many other, may make you start to ask the question, am I really a Christian? How do I know that I'm really a Christian? And I want you to know that's not the goal of the sermon. That's not the goal of the text. The text is not to make you wonder if you are one of the godless. It's to tell you there are godless. You're not one of them. So don't act like them and don't listen to them. And verse 24 and 25 is where you can fill your faith up with this certainty because it's nothing but promise. One of the questions I ask our confirmands as they're getting ready to come to the supper for the first time is one of the last questions I ask them. I say, tell me the difference between God's law and God's gospel. And there's all sorts of right ways to answer that. The easiest one is to say, God's law is the Ten Commandments. It tells us what to do. God's gospel is the creed. It tells us what God has done for us and what he's going to do. Uh, law and gospel. So now you know, gospel is what God has done for us and what he's going to do. Verses 24 and 25, all gospel. All gospel. It's all about what God's going to do for you. Okay, I'm going to read it now. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our common salvation, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the power of God that was before eternity, that will outlast this broken and fallen world, and that is yours now, now, today, today. What is this reality, this glory? It is that Jesus Christ is your Savior. The man in history, under Pontius Pilate, born of the Virgin Mary, who is eternally the Son of God, was crucified didn't stay dead, has risen, and is ascended to the right hand of God for you. Let's do it together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And because he's coming again to bring this gift of salvation with him, you can know, again, verse 24, he is able to keep you from stumbling, and he is able to present you blameless before the presence of the glory of God. Judgment Day is something that Jude's going to talk about. That the day which is coming, on which Jesus comes, he's going to hold accountable every human being for every thought, word, and deed they have ever done. And he's going to burn with fire all wickedness forever. That should scare you. But what should not scare you is that he is able to present you on that day without anything to burn away. That's what he's done by dying for you. And that doesn't mean that you can't still build with straw and lose some of what you thought you gained in this life as a Christian. You can, and that's a fair warning too. But it's not because he's not able to present you blameless. It's because he's going to present you blameless. Whatever wickedness you cling to in your weakness as a Christian is going to burn away on that last day so that you will be blameless. And you need to go into everything else Jude is going to say as a warning by being confident he is able to do this for you. He is able to make it so that when you stumble, you rise up again, and you will never stumble all the way out of the church. In fact, every time you stumble, you're going to find yourself kneeling at the foot of the cross. You're going to find yourself kneeling at the railing where the body and blood of Jesus lavishes grace upon you and covers you from all of your sin. And to him who is able to do this, let there be praise, he says. That's how he ends the book, okay? I'm starting here because I want you to just not forget that as we get into the warnings that he's going to be throwing our way. All right, so going backwards, we'll see how how this works out here. Uh, Verse 22 and 23 close by giving instructions on three different ways to behave, knowing that there are three different kinds of people you're going to deal with in the church. All right? And, And these people are weak sinners, Drifting sinners and hardened sinners. Okay? Weak sinners, those who believe and they're just they're just kind of struggling with it. Okay? That's all of us, really. Right? Then you have drifting sinners, those who are like, you know, there's a good reason for this sin I'm doing. I should be able to do it, I think. And then you have hardened sinners. They say the sin's good. Evil is right. Let's do more of it. Huh? So, I'm going to read it to you now. These three are in order, and he tells us what to do with them. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
to others, show mercy with fear. Hating, that's the word, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, first, notice two of the three he says have mercy on. I don't think that means don't have mercy on the other one either. The, the, the posture of the Christian, even toward the enemy, is mercy. Um, I'll leave that example for another time. I'm just going to repeat what I said. The posture of the Christian is mercy, even and especially on your enemy. Okay? So just because someone's a hardened sinner doesn't mean you get to show wrath. It means you get to show mercy mixed with wisdom. And, and that's the key to what he says here. But let's start with the first one. Have mercy on those who doubt. That's the weak person. They're just not sure. They're, they're, just, they're, they're stumbling. They're trying. They're, they're, they're crawling along. They want to do right, but they're not sure. Right? What do we do to Christians who are there in their weakness? We have mercy on them. The second one then, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is the person who is being led astray. They, they actually have begun to listen to the world. They're coming up with some of the arguments. You know, did God really say you know, that they're willing to listen to that? And it says to them, save them. Save them. How? Snatch them out of the fire. Well, what does that mean? It means be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Know your Bible well enough that when they say, what about this? And, you know, could it really be that Jonah was a real person? You go, yeah, of course he's a real person. You snatch them out of the fire. You tell them what the truth is. You don't hide your light. You shine it. You scatter the salt that God has made you to be. The third one, then, again, is, is where the letter is really focused on. These others that you would show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is someone who says, I can live with evil. Evil's not a problem. I kind of like evil. You still show mercy, but you don't get too close. You don't get too close. What do I mean by don't get too close? I don't necessarily mean don't sit at the same table, although the Bible will say that in a couple places. But what I mean is you don't follow them. You don't listen to them. When they stand up somewhere and they go, da, 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 evil, 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 you just be like, that was wrong. When they say, you should be more like me, you go, no, I shouldn't. And, And you don't especially let them, in our age, emotionally abuse you so that you will follow their lies. In fact, you then instead show mercy mixed with fear. Fear of what? Them? No. Fear of God. Fear of what's coming upon them. Right? Why is it a good idea, if you live in Sodom and Gomorrah, to move? Huh? Because fear. That's why, get out, right? It's a bad place to be. And Sodom and Gomorrah is going to come back here in the text in a little bit. But, so the closing, how to handle our life with the hope we have in us. It's about mercy, but it's about mercy that's able to distinguish. We're not to be fools. We're not to act like everybody's the same. We're to listen to what they say and then respond accordingly. So, Um, Let me take a second aside from the text here and say something I said at the first service that I I really do feel this is important for us to begin to reckon with as a congregation, especially, but I also think as a church body. I know you've heard the word mission before, right? And for for many, many decades, uh, the leadership of our church body, following the leadership of American churches, has talked a lot about how important mission is. And because all of us know that Jesus did say, go into all nations and make disciples of them, teaching them to believe everything I command, we all think, oh, this is a good thing. Of course we should do that. 
Of course we should send people to seminaries so they can go and preach. Of course we should send missionaries to places where there is no one preaching at all. Strangely, mission often has to do in our circles with giving money to charities. That's not mission. But more than that problem, that is a problem. Uh, Charity is not the problem. It's confusing the two that's the problem. But there's another problem, and that is this idea. That if we just do mission right, everybody will come around. If we figure out the right kind of music, if we figure out the right kind of sales pitch, if we get the right pastor in the pulpit, then everybody will join. And there won't be anybody who will hate us or who will disagree. That is an unbiblical hope. I would even call it a godless hope. Because one of the most certain truths of the Bible is that God is going to send a large number of people, a majority of people, to a burning fire of hell. Again, the road is wide that leads to destruction, and many are on it. The road is narrow that leads to salvation, and few find it. So anything we would do in the name of Jesus that believes we're going to change that means we're on the wide road ourselves. I'm not talking about you personally. I'm talking about us as a body. And what Jude is writing to say is, don't do that. Do not think you're going to convert the wicked by your efforts. If you don't believe by your own reason or strength, then why would your own reason or strength convince somebody else to believe? So instead, learn to spot the wicked. And that is what this book is about. Learning to spot the wicked so that you are not led astray by them, so that you do not follow them. Okay, so again, um, verse 20 and 21. We're going to just keep going backwards here. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is what you're to be about as a Christian. You're to be seeking the mercy of God. You're to be trusting that he's in charge of all things. You're going to walk through this veil of tears, this valley of the shadow of death, surrounded by wolves and thorns and all these things. But you're going to know that the light of a new dawn not only is coming, but has come. And by virtue of his resurrection, he's inside of you now. You have the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. Not so the wicked. Verses 17 and 19 through 19. Go back to the top of that paragraph. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. All right. So again, As I talk about the wicked today, obviously there are wicked in the world, right? If you go out into the world, you're going to find people who don't believe what the Bible says and want to do evil and call it good. But that's not really what this is talking about. This is talking about when that happens in the church. And when that happens in the church, what is the result? What is the end? Why does Satan actually do this? He wants to cause divisions in the church. He doesn't want to leave the church okay. He doesn't want to let the flock graze by green pastures. He wants to scatter you so that you run in confusion and go worship other gods. And so he sends these dividers into the church, these worldly people who pertain to Christianity. They say, oh, I love God. God's great. Oh, I I like God. 
Huh? But they can't confess Jesus Christ's name, nor would they be able to tell you the first thing about what he's done for them. And these are then, he says, and this is the most important line there, end of verse 19, they're devoid of the Spirit. So what Jude is insisting you do is you know that there are people who claim to be God-fearing Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit. You just have to know that. It's just true. I don't like it. It doesn't make me happy. It's just true. It's the world we live in. There are false Christians. They cause divisions. They will be what he calls in verse 18, scoffers. Scoffers. In the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Proverbs, you get a list of different kinds of evil. They, they distinguish between this evil and that evil. It doesn't come across in the English very well, but it's definitely there in the Hebrew. There's more than one type of fool, and they have layers from the fool who's just kind of stupid to the fool who's really hard, and he's going to absolutely destroy himself. And you have other layers of sin. You have the sinner, you have the wicked. The worst of the worst of the worst, he's both a fool and a sinner, is the one who's called the scoffer. Because the scoffer gets to a point where he really thinks it's funny to mock goodness. He thinks it's funny to mock God. I'm not really worried about the evil at all. This scoffer, again, devoid of the spirit, is defined in the rest of verse 18 as following ungodly passion. Both of those ideas, ungodly and passion, are going to come back in the rest of the book. Okay, uh, The word ungodly shows up, I think, more than any other word in the book. It's the word asabea. That's in Greek. It doesn't necessarily mean anything to you, but asabea. It, it doesn't really mean not godly. That would have to do with the word theos, atheos, uh, atheist, ungodly, right? So this is asabea. It means something more like impious. You could hear it in the English godless, although again, we're using the word God and the word God has nothing to do with it. But a person who is godless believes there's no recourse. Like whatever I do and get away with, I get away with. That's the idea here, right? They are, they are godless and in their godlessness, they just do what they want, which means they end up following their passions. Yeah. Whatever they feel is right, they believe is right. Passion in English is often seen as a good word, right? Man, that guy, you see him, he had a lot of passion. Uh, um, that's fine, but that's not the way the Bible uses the word. Passions are those things that rise up in your heart that make you think, ah, I need to, and they're wrong. They're, they're the wrong things. Or when you want to do wrong, passion is what is driving you. You might compare it to instinct. And since you can say, as we do as Christians, that we're fallen, our instinct is fallen, our native passions are tending toward evil. Yeah, the old-fashioned word for that is concupiscence. You like that one? Concupiscence. The tendency to do evil when we have a chance. Yeah. And even to the level where we'll do good for the sake of evil. That is, I'll become the best person I can so I can prove to God how great I am. Yeah. And that's actually the worst evil you could ever chase. And to think you're going to somehow save yourself from your sins. So again, key definition of the scoffer is the one who chases godless passion. Chases godless passion. Not so you again, remember, but be warned. Be warned. Okay, more descriptions of this scoffer, this false teacher, this godless person. Verse 16, continuing our backwards trek. It says, these are grumblers malcontents, following their own sinful desires, there's your passions again, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain 
advantage. Now, can you see as you look at that, that you have two things that are about the tongue, one thing that's about the heart, and two more things about the tongue. Huh? The heart's in the middle. That is following sinful passion. What is the result of following sinful passion, though? Grumbling, you know, complaining with the tongue, malcontent, stirring up division, boasting, you know, taking pride in yourself and showing favoritism, uh, telling someone else you take pride in them for yourself. Huh? And that is what a passionate tongue will do. It will use other people in order to divide them from what is good and gain more for self while complaining the entire way along. And no, I'm not talking politics at all at this point. I'm talking false Christianity. Those who say they have God but have not ever known or have forgotten their first love. Grumblers, maltitants, boasters, showing favoritism. All right, stepping backwards again, we have a description of this same group of people, the godless, pulled out of a book called Enoch. Now, maybe you remember the story of Enoch. Enoch is like the, I'm going to have to guess it here, is like great-great-grandfather of Noah, somewhere in there. Huh? And in the midst of this age before the flood where men are living 800 years and you have the Nephilim arising, these great men who do great things that we don't know much more about it than that, but we know that it ends up all being evil. Their hearts are for evil. So the great things they're doing are great things of war. And the, the sin of Cain, which we'll talk about in a moment, the murder of your brother has become something that is commonplace to the people. In the midst of all of that, Enoch stands set apart. He is not like the rest. We don't know much about him. All we know is that he, quote, walks with God. He walks with God. Now, which, by the way, becomes a major metaphor for what the Christian faith and life is. is to walk with God, to walk in knowledge that God is with you everywhere you go. Enoch walks with God, and then it says, and he was no more, for God took him. Did he ascend to heaven in a fiery chariot like Elijah? Maybe. You know. did, he, did he die? Maybe. No, he, he was just gone. He just gone. Huh? The idea is that God spared him from everything else that was coming. Noah was young. Noah gets to build the ark. Enoch just gets to go to rest. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, it'll say in a moment here, he probably didn't write a book that lasted through the flood and came to Jude, the brother of Jesus, to be quoted for his writing. Probably not. But there was a book written in his name in the intertestamental period. That is, between Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist, the last prophet, sort of, first prophet of the New Testament, between them, there's 500 years of silence where no prophecy comes. Although there's lots of people that kind of claim to speak for God, and some of it gets uh, kept, some of it gets held on to. I've talked about this stuff before. It's called the Apocrypha. You have marvelous little works like The Wisdom of Solomon. It's a great book. You got 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees, uh, the history of the Maccabean revolts. Uh, you have The Wisdom of Jesus Sirah, uh, an Alexandrian Jew who had read a lot of the Old Testament and spoke very well of it. Into that mix of things that you can find in a Catholic Bible, so-called Catholic Bible. Guess what? You can also find it in a Lutheran Bible if that Lutheran Bible is in German. 
And we don't have any Lutheran Bibles in English. It's one of the great failings of the Lutheran church. We let everyone else translate for us. Anyway, you don't find them in the Protestant Bible, but they're there as an addendum to the Old Testament, not because they're prophecy, but because they're confessions of intertestamental Christians. It tells you what the Christians between the last prophet and John the Baptist were thinking and believing. So we would, as Lutherans, never call them inspired and without error, but we do consider them valuable. Now, Enoch fits into this in a little bit of a weird way. He's not the most accepted of these books, and it, frankly, it's quite weird. It's a weird book. Um, I'm not an expert on it. I've not even read it. I've just read enough to know it's weird. Uh, but nonetheless, it will get mentioned here by Jude. Jude picks up on it. Why? Why? Well, we can make a big uh, argument about whether or not it's the oral tradition that was passed down through Noah, eventually all the way through the Jews, and someone wrote it down, and it really is from Enoch. If you want to believe that, fine. I can't stop you. I don't think I have to stop you. I think it's a little unreasonable. I think it's more likely that a very faithful Christian in the intertestamental period, inspired by Enoch, seeing the godlessness around him, wrote faithful truths. Yeah, And then Jude, knowing most of the people he's writing to have this book and have read this book, he says that book's right. It's right about what it says. And so he says that now. It doesn't have to be scripture for him to put it in scripture as a quote that is true. In fact, you know, Paul will quote one of the pagan philosophers at one point. You remember this? this is a great quote. <laughs> All Cretans are liars. That's, that's his quote. <laughs> yeah. But he puts it in the Bible and he says it's true. Huh. Yeah, look at that. So here it is again. Uh, verse uh, uh, verse eight, 14 and following. So it was about these. Remember, we're talking about the scoffer, the wicked, the unbeliever, the godless, the spiritless. About these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands. The Greek word is myriad. He comes with myriads. He comes with myriads of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all of the, here's that asabea word, all of the godless of all their deeds of godlessness that they have committed in such a godless way. And of all the harsh things that godless sinners have spoken against him. What's the point here? Why is he referencing Enoch? He's saying judgment day is coming. God is coming on that judgment day. And he's going to put an end to godlessness once and for all. Whether inside or outside of the church. So don't forget that. Expect that. Remember that that's what we believe. Christianity is an end of the world cult. I don't mean cult like the Jehovah's Witnesses with emotional manipulation. I mean, we think something nobody else thinks. <laughs> we think the end of the world is nigh. And we think when it comes, God's going to burn a bunch of stuff with fire. And that's a good thing. We're looking forward to it. We say, Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Huh? Because we know that when he burns the wicked with fire, we'll enter into bliss, bliss and righteousness. And certainly, I mean, do I need to back up and do the Lutheran thing? We all know we deserve to go to hell. We all know we're justified not by our works, but by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, he's going to destroy the wicked with fire, and this is our freedom. And for us to forget that is for us to forget that. Uh, the warning. All right, so going back a few more verses here as well. Uh, 12 and 13. What we have here is um, four metaphors, four pictures, four symbols given very quickly of rot. They're all things that rot. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, 
Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I don't know why I wrote four metaphors of wrath. There's more than four there. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. What I count. Hidden reefs at your love feast. Love feast, by the way, is a early church word for communion. So again, this is inside the church and the scoffer, the godless person, the one without the spirit, the one who doesn't want to believe what Jesus says. Remember, that's not you, but they do exist and we can't pretend they don't. They are like a hidden reef. Now, again, that makes me think of surfing. And if you're a surfer and you fall on the reef, you're going to get all cut up. But that's not really what Jude's thinking about. He's thinking about ships. You think about you're in your, your nice merchant ship and you're going along and there's that reef and big hole in the bottom. There it goes. All the money, all the gold, all the textile. A hidden reef. It's a great threat. That's why you want a good pilot on your ship usually. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're hidden and they'll sink the ship. By the way, what is the ship a metaphor of often in the Bible? The church. The church. Yeah. So they feast without fear. Notice they have no fear of God. Then shepherds feeding themselves. Here's where you can see he's leaning on the idea of the false teacher, not just the false Christian, but the pastor who stands up and speaks for God without speaking what God would have him say. And notice how this shepherd, what does he want to do? He wants to eat the sheep. Now, he wants it for himself. And this, this idea will come back again in a moment. But shepherds who feed themselves, what's a shepherd really supposed to do? I mean, true. Will a shepherd eat a sheep eventually? Yes. But what do you do with your flock? You feed the flock, right? As opposed to yourself. You don't go out and just feed yourself all day. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. What are waterless clouds? It's a drought. There's no food in a drought, right? It makes the crops not grow. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Remember how Jesus, when he comes one day in hunger to a fig tree, it's a fruit tree, and he looks for fruit on the tree, and what does he find? Nothing. He says, I curse you. Yeah. He also tells the story of the vineyard, wherein he sent his workers to the vineyard and asked them to give him the goods, the fruit of the vineyard, and they wouldn't. They kept it for themselves, right? So by, thereby showing that they were a fruitless tree. A bad tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the Sermon on the Mount. A good tree bears much fruit. We already did this this morning, but let's look at it again. What's the good fruit? Lips that confess the name of Jesus Christ because Christ has died. Christ will come again. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Again, the idea of a wave is it's not stable. It's going wherever it goes. Wherever the wind blows it, there it goes. And the, the foam coming up is, you don't want to drink it, that's for sure. So it's, it's kind of the, the frothy grossness of their shame. And finally, the wandering star. This is like a comet. I know everyone likes to wish upon a star, although... Uh, the company that made that famous isn't doing much good for our kids these days. I'll leave that there. But um, a comet is not something you should wish on or believe in. It's, it's a piece of rock flying through space in darkness forever. Uh, and he's saying that's what an unbelieving, godless person is. There's wandering in darkness forever. All right. Going backwards again. Woe to them, verse 11 says. They have walked in the way of Cain 
and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Karah's rebellion. We could do an hour on just that. I could take you back in the Old Testament, show you all of the stories about Balaam. It's like two and a half, three chapters about this guy, Balaam. Plus, there's two other places where he's mentioned. He's mentioned in the Psalm and in one other place. So if you're being just kind of a out of nowhere and then gone again guy, he's got a massive place in the Old Testament theology, and he gets picked up on here as one of three stories that describes for you the entirety of unbelief. Balaam's error, the way of Cain, you probably know a little more about that, and then Karah's rebellion. I, I really like this one. Um, so let's start with Cain, though, because he's kind of the, the easiest one, right? Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, who have received the promise that from them will come a son who will defeat the devil. I can't promise you that his whole life he was told, hey, son, you're the savior. But he sure kind of acts like it. Uh, He acts like he thinks he really is something. Because while God has instituted sacrifices of blood, that is the killing of animals for the sake of atonement, Cain gets this idea he's going to make up new worship. He's not going to receive the worship God gave of these sacrifices. He's going to go grow some plants and replace the meat and the fat with some plants. And then when God doesn't like it, he's going to blame God. And then since he blames God, he's going to hate his brother, who was just doing the right thing and offering the sacrifices as God instituted them. That's Abel. And then since he blames Abel, he thinks he's going to fix the whole thing by going and killing his brother. Even after God says to him, look, evil has you right now. If you don't stop, it's going to get worse. He goes, "Ah, am I my brother's keeper? Whatever. He goes and kills his brother. The way of Cain, what is it? It's envy. It's envy and pride. It's the belief that you are here to give something to God. And you're not. God didn't create humans so we could give stuff to him. He gives stuff to us. That's why he's God. It's what he wants to do. It's actually what makes him good. A bad God would want to take, a good God wants to give. That's what he does. The way of Cain is to not believe that and to believe God needs something from you and then to be angry at God when he doesn't do it the way you want him to. All right, so that's the way of Cain. Uh, Balaam's error. This one maybe take a little more time to unpack. Uh, Balaam is maybe most famous because of his donkey. Yeah, you remember that story? So you know, he, he's on his way somewhere, I'll tell you in a moment, but he, he's riding his donkey And God doesn't want him to go there. And so he sends the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus pre-incarnate. He sends Jesus pre-incarnate dressed as the, you know, the angel of armies, the man of great power, the man of war that Gideon sees and things like that. And he stands in the road in front of Balaam riding his donkey and Balaam can't see him. Now, why is that? Eyes of faith. I, I don't know. Something like that. But guess who can see him? The donkey. And so the donkey stops. Donkey won't walk through a fiery angel. He's like, no way, dude, that's crazy. In fact, after he gets beat a couple times by Balaam, he turns around and says, no way, dude, that's crazy. I ain't going to do that. Why are you hitting me? Now, you know, speaking of things liberals don't like to believe, there's one of them. How did this donkey talk? Well, God was there at that moment trying to get Balaam to repent. That's how. That's how. And he will continue in this way up to the point of the end of the story, but Balaam will never repent. And the reason is because Balaam has an eye for one thing, and that's cash. That's cash money. All right, so, so the rest of the story goes like this. Balaam's a prophet. True prophet, false prophet. Well, he's going to show up being a true prophet, although he's faithless. That's weird. How do you be a faithless true prophet? Well, it means that you don't believe anything you say, and you try to say other stuff, but you can't help yourself and you say the right stuff anyway. 
Now, he's been hired by one of the kings who doesn't want Israel to come out of the wilderness into the promised land. He's been hired by one of these kings before a war to come and call on the name of the true God and curse the people so that his army will win. And he's been promised a good amount of money for this. He gets on his donkey. He goes, the whole donkey thing takes place. He eventually gets there anyway, right? And this is a great, the great way the story goes. Oh, give me the money. Here's the money. Okay, I'm all ready. I got my fire. I got my sacrifices. Got my smoke and incense. I'm ready to curse. I'm going to curse you, king. You're cursed. Ha, ha, ha. Oops. The king says, oh, wait a minute. You did it wrong. You're supposed to curse them. He's like, yeah, I know. Well, let me try again. He does, he does it three times. Three times. And he did, I curse you, king. I bless them. And the king's like, what are you doing, man? And it's kind of the end of the story, except it's not. Um, it's the word ends right there. But we know that from there, Balaam will leave, but he won't go home. He will go down amidst the Israelites, and he will be a curse to them as he teaches them to commit fornication with pagan women and to begin worshiping pagan gods. That's part of the issue as well. And he's trying to make good on the buy and the bargain, I suppose. But now, what is Balaam's error? Is to have the word of God and to prefer mammon, right? to prefer money to prefer profit, or perhaps to believe that I have the word of God and therefore I shall profiteer by it. Uh, when the church believes we're going to make things great for ourselves, uh, we're seeking the way of Balaam. Yeah. Success is never something that we are promised in a worldly sense, and Balaam insists we must have it. Uh, think of that mission conversation we had a little bit earlier. So way of Cain, envy, Balaam's error, seeking mammon, right? And then finally, um, uh, Karah's rebellion. So Karah is a, a leader. He's a chief amongst the Israelite clans. It's a guy with a lot of power. Think like a sheik. You know, he's got a big tent. He's got camels. He's doing well, you know, spice and incense and all this kind of stuff. And, and he's amongst the Israelites, but he's, you know, he's just a chief. He's not Moses. And he started thinking, that ain't fair. Why does Moses get to do all the talking? Why does Moses get to make all the judgments? You know what? I don't think that's right. Hey, what do you, th you think Moses should do all this stuff? I don't, you don't think so. Let's follow me. Let's, and he starts a rebellion against Moses. And um, God says to Moses, you know, you, you got to go take care of this here. Uh, go down there and tell the people, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to judge between you two. So Moses, you know, tomorrow there's going to be a judgment between me and Kerala. Let's not fight, right? We'll let God decide. Since he's our God, he can decide which of us is supposed to speak. Tomorrow, he will decide. So everyone comes out the next day, and Moses says, okay, I'm going to stand over here. Kerala, you stand over there. And everybody else, you stand where you want to stand, by Kerala or by me. Best part of the story, Kerala's sons leave his tent and stand by Moses. They will be in the tabernacle and temple worship all the way through the intertestamental times. The sons of Korah write psalms that become scripture. It's really cool. But they come over, right? Some people join Korah, and what happens? Uh, the earth just opens and swallows them, takes them down in alive. Now, uh, one of the psalms, the sons of Korah, right, says, we will not fear even though the earth give way. And the mountains are swallowed in the heart of the sea. They also write, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Uh, you, can, you can kind of see the overlap there. Yeah. Karah's rebellion, though. What, what's the rebellion about? Dissatisfaction with your place in life. Being discontent with the authority God has put over you, whatever that might be. 
We're going to see in a moment again that despising authority is part of the scoffer. Well, let's review here. Way of Cain, envy. Heir of Balaam, greed. Right? And Karaz, rebellion, despising authority. Despising authority. Going backwards, a reminder that this is about our instinctual nature. Right? Um, verse 9. No, not verse 9. Verse 10. Verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, right? Following the passions, following instinct, leading to sins of the tongue, that is to blaspheme, to speak evil, to speak something different than what God has given us to speak. Even though, another story from the Apocrypha uh, in verse 9, even though we have a story about how you shouldn't blaspheme. When the archangel Michael was contending with the devil and disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Right, so point of the story is it's connected to the Enoch stuff. But the point of it is that better than saying this, that to anybody is to call on the name of the Lord in all times. Better than say, I'm going to stop you. You say, the Lord will stop you from doing evil. Right? Or dear Jesus, stop them from doing evil and to pray rather than to blaspheme. And those two things are kind of opposites of each other. Um, going backwards again, just a little bit, verse 8. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So there's that blaspheming talk. They use their tongues for evil. They reject authority, like Balaam's error, no, excuse me, like Karah's rebellion, like I said a moment ago. They defile the flesh. The word there has to do with pornography, porneia. It's not just pornography. It is all things that are a misuse of the body for sexual profit or pleasure. Yeah. Pornography is just one common use of it today. These people will, again, um, defile the flesh, seek after to live according to porneia, to reject authority and blaspheme. Let me say something. I mean, we're almost out of time, but let me say something about pornography, though, because it is just such a major, major issue today across the board. Guys, girls, all ages. And if you're in this room right now and you're a Christian and you have struggled with it, you're feeling guilty right now, as well you should. But there's a good chance you start to say, oh, does that mean I'm not a Christian because I've struggled with this? No, it's not saying anyone who ever struggles with pornography is not a Christian. It's saying anyone who says it's OK. I no problem. It's really a good thing. That person's not a Christian. So, so if you're in a battle with pornography, first off, get some accountability. Second off, just unplug the machine for two weeks. Seriously, just unplug the machine for two weeks. You'll get stronger, right? Uh, third off, come talk to me. I'll be open with you. I'll talk about this stuff. I'll help you through it, all right? Uh, accountability is the huge thing. Having someone who you can trust, who understands that it's a drug, that it's addictive, and that you can't just stop on your own anymore, and you can stop eating sugar on your own. Uh, pretty tough thing to do. Uh, alcohol does that to people. You know what I'm talking about. So, all right. Again, what the warning is, though, is against those who want to be in the church and say, oh, don't worry if your kids watch pornography. Not a problem. And that's bad. And we can't allow for that. We have to stop that. All right. So going backwards again, just a few more verses here till we're back at the front. Mm -mm -mm. Let's start it. Uh, uh, you got you got three examples here, verse 5 through 7. I'm going to read it all. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, 
afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Three examples, all from the Old Testament, all warnings for us about how God isn't joking around. It's not a game. It's not a hobby. He is going to bring the wicked to justice at some point and even at times in history. And so even though he saved the people of Israel out of Egypt because they chose to do their own thing and to not believe in him, he just cursed them in the desert and left a bunch of them there to die. And even though Sodom and Gomorrah were great cities, capital places of trade, a, a, a wonder of the ancient world at the time, there were five cities in this region all around this beautiful water that now is the Dead Sea. Even though it was great, it wasn't great because going after strange flesh and sexual immorality, which is more than just pornography, it's a rejection of marriage and a lifting up of what should be marriage as something to do only for your fun and often unnaturally, they were burned off the face of the earth. And then in between these two, you have the angels who are no longer angels. Uh, they rebelled against God and he didn't destroy them entirely because they're part of how creation works, but he is preparing to destroy them eternally in the hell of fire, which is prepared for the devil and all his fallen demons and all humans who want to go there too. That is all those who scoffing, following their instinct, rejecting authority, thinking that evil is good and good is evil. They will also be cast into that pit of fire. This is the warning to remind you of these things. Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed, long ago designated for condemnation, ungodly, asabea, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, that's passion, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, review. There's wicked. You're not wicked. You're saved. Don't be deceived by the wicked. Remember what the scriptures say. Learn to say it yourself. And then trust in the one who is able to bring you through it all into eternal life. In the name of Jesus. Amen.